นะโมทัสสะปะคะวะตาวาระหะตาวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะคะวะตาวาระหะตาวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะคะวะตาวาระหะตาวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามาสามี
the suffering of old age, sickness, death, different forms of pain, grief, despair. That's what he was interested in, That's what led him to leave his life in the palace, go out into the forest, practice, ultimately realizing the Dhamma. The Buddha pointed out the Dhamma is truth, it's the way things are. Whether a Buddha arises in the world <coughs> or not, the truth is the truth. But it's the duty, the function of a Buddha to point out the truth. Clearing away the obstacles in his own mind to seeing and penetrating truth through his practice. Clearing away delusions misunderstandings, ignorance, abandoning mental defilements, kilesa, rooted in greed, anger, delusion. The Buddha is self-enlightened, so even though before he was a Buddha he did have teachers teaching him meditation, they weren't able to completely tell him the path, the way to liberation from suffering because they themselves had not done that, not completed that. So he had to go off it eventually and become self-enlightened, self-liberated. Then out of compassion spent the rest of his life teaching others, those who are fortunate enough to meet with him, give them teachings, instruct them in what he had penetrated, understood through his own practice to help them free themselves from suffering. So the, what we might ask, what does the Buddha respect or venerate? You know, we venerate the Buddha, we bow to the Buddha statue when we chant, when we come into the, the hall. What does the Buddha venerate? You know, the Buddha venerates the Dhamma. He had gratitude to the Dhamma because that's what brings a human being to enlightenment. By understanding the Dhamma, changes our mind, brightens the mind away from ignorance and delusion towards wisdom, insight. In a previous life as a, what we call bodhisattva, a great being, one dedicated to practicing to become a Buddha. He was once a king in northern India. And he was traveling on the border of his kingdom with a big entourage of soldiers, servants and so on carrying a traveling in a chariot along a small pathway. In those days, roads were very small and muddy. Everyone was following him. And who should he meet approaching in and coming in the opposite direction was the neighboring king from the next kingdom with his 
entourage and retinue of soldiers, bodyguards, servants and so on. The road was so narrow, neither could avoid the other. They had to stop face to face. And they weren't aggressive because they had the training and skills, diplomacy and manners of kings. So they stopped and greeted each other respectfully. But they had a problem, diplomatic dispute, who should get out of the way of the other. So in a very formal way they negotiated because obviously why are their individual reputation credibility was at stake, who would give way to the other. It could even lead to war or bad feeling between the two countries. So they asked each other questions about their kingdom. They said, how big is your kingdom? It turned out they're both the same size. How many people live in your kingdom? Same number. How much wealth do you have? Same, same number of gold coins, same number of sacks of rice and other kind of foodstuffs and all the different wealth that kings have, same on both sides. So it's getting a bit difficult. How could they decide who was maybe more superior in one way or other? The same level of learning. They all both knew many languages, knew many things. Getting very difficult. But the Buddha in that life was a bodhisattva, so a very spiritual person. And he kept the five precepts and then regularly kept the eight precepts, just as we might do on a day like today with Sakapucha. He meditated even though the other king was also somewhat spiritual, he would make a lot of charitable donations and help the poor and the sick. He never kept the eight precepts, whereas the Bodhisattva king did. But the other king was very wise and he agreed, hmm, in terms of spiritual conduct, I can't match you. I don't keep the eight precepts. So he moved aside for the Bodhisattva and let the Bodhisattva and all his army go along the narrow roadway. In peace, he agreed. As he said, your Dhamma is more than mine. That was the way they used Dhamma. You can use the term Dhamma in many ways to mean truth. And in this sense, to turn, pointing to the truth of the practice of that king, that bodhisattva, that he, he was more advanced on the spiritual path, kept the eight precepts, a very difficult thing for, to do if you were a king, with all the duties of a king, it would be very demanding to keep the eight precepts as well, but the bodhisattva did, very pure, very devoted. That was the Dhamma, so he respected that. Even a Buddha respects the Dhamma, bows to the Dhamma, holds up the Dhamma as the highest. Respects the Dhamma, respects Vinaya. And the training 
we follow in virtuous conduct sila. Not just Vinaya isn't just for monks, it's also for the Buddhist lay community to train in. You train in five precepts, and that's your Vinaya. You learn to be a good father or mother, husband, wife, good citizen, a good uh, person in the place you work, whether you're a leader or an owner or a worker in the place you earn your living. All of these are part of our Vinaya training. And the Buddha taught Dhamma and Vinaya. That's what he left us when he died, when he entered Parinibbana. And the Dhamma that the Buddha taught, pointing to truth and helping us in our search for liberation, freedom from suffering, we call it the Swakata Dhamma, as we just chanted. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo. Swakata Dhamma means the Dhamma is well taught, means very complete. And whether you've been brought up as a Buddhist from childhood or you've come to Buddhism later in life, like many of us, one of the things that attracts people to the Buddhist teaching is that it's very well explained. It's very direct. It points to truth. And as human beings, we can appreciate the teaching that the Buddha gave. It's pointing to truth. It's very reasonable and it makes good sense and very complete. In fact, one thing we're remembering today when we remember the Parinibbana of the Buddha is he said before he died, he said, I can die now because the Dhamma is completely uh, well expounded by me. I didn't leave anything out. He left teachings that would lead other beings to liberation, complete freedom from suffering, to be able to experience Nibbana or enlightenment, just like the Buddha. He didn't hold back. He didn't hide anything or mislead anybody. He didn't leave some secret teaching for only special people to know or something like that. The Dhamma was well expounded and very complete, whole. So he said, I can die now, I can enter Parinibbana, which is the way you talk about death for a Buddha, without any doubt, regret, any concern, because the Dhamma is completely taught by me. And it's being preserved by the Sangha, both in practice, so we have many enlightened students of the Buddha, in, both in his lifetime and since he died. Right up to the present day, Sangha, we have enlightened teachers like Ajahn Chah, my teacher, and many other enlightened teachers, mostly Sangha members, monks and nuns, but some laity as well. They preserve the teachings through the practice and also through study, remembering the verses of the teaching. Nowadays we write them down, we have the Tripitaka. 
all the Buddhist teachings stored in the suttas, the Vinaya, the Abhidhamma. And Buddhists everywhere have great respect for those teachings because they know this is the path that leads to enlightenment. So we're very lucky that those teachings are still with us after two and a half thousand years. Still complete, still available for us to use in our lives to free ourselves from suffering. So when we recollect the Buddha on this day, we're recollecting Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, <coughs> we're also acknowledging our potential as human beings to become enlightened just like a Buddha. We have our faith in the teachings, we've come to hear them, listen to them, practice them so far in our lives. And hopefully all of you have found some benefits so far in your lives through these teachings, brought you much joy, happiness, peace, understanding. But we're also acknowledging that whatever particular obstacles we may still face, we still have karma, we still have our attachments, our different problems in life, but we all have the same kind of mind that the Buddha and all the enlightened beings had. We still have the chance to practice, to realize the Dhamma, realize the Four Noble Truths, the Arya Satya Dhamma, just like the Buddha, just like all the enlightened disciples of the Buddha. That's probably the beginning of faith or sattā for most people is recognizing that the way of practice begins with ourselves internally. If we want to experience peace in the world, a peaceful world, where is that going to come from? It has to come first from our own heart. If we want to experience happiness in the world Where's it going to come from? It's going to come from our own heart. So we have to practice and develop the right causes, conditions, right qualities that will bring us to experience peace, happiness, understanding through our own efforts. And this is the starting point of Buddhist practice. That's what the Buddha started with. He had, He didn't have a teacher, but he had faith, confidence that human beings must be able to overcome, go beyond stress, suffering. We're luckier than him in that sense. We already have the Buddha as a teacher. Confirming, oh yes, human beings can free themselves from all forms of stress and suffering through their own efforts. It can be done. That gives us the conviction, the energy to start practicing because others have done it. Not just the Buddha but all these enlightened disciples of the Buddha have done it before us. Right up to the present day we have Ajahn Chah for example and many other teachers.
So the path of practice that the Buddha gave us it begins with ourselves inwardly and this is why we come together on occasions like this to hear the Dhamma and practice meditation bhavana cultivation cultivation of uh, body, speech, mind in the right way cultivating it in the right way to develop more peace, more compassion, more wisdom free ourselves from suffering. If we are to wait for the world, the rest of the world to bring us peace and happiness, we might be waiting all our lives and probably many future lives as well. The way the world is, it's unlikely to sort itself out. The way we can sort the world out though is through our own efforts, starting with ourselves first. If we want to change the world, change the world, make it a better place, we have to begin with ourselves. This is one of the the ways the Buddha taught. You know, the Dhamma is open aiko, leading inwards. We have to learn to reflect on ourselves, be a mirror to ourselves, and come to understand our own hearts and minds better so that we can find more peace internally, whatever's going on outside. Whether other people are practicing or not, whether the world is peaceful or not, we have to learn to turn our attention inwards. This is how the Buddha practiced on this night, the night of Visakha. As we know, he practiced anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and develop what we call the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And first of all, learning to calm the mind by bringing attention to the breathing as a meditation technique to bring up mindfulness, meaning full awareness of the breathing, breathing in, breathing out, knowing knowing the breath when it's short, when it's long, whatever way it was, to be mindful of the breath. This is the beginning of the, you might say, the path to enlightenment, developing mindfulness, learning to pay attention to the way things are in the present moment, using meditation techniques, using the breath, using the mantra Buddha or any of the other techniques we use. It's always about bringing mindfulness to the present moment, paying attention and developing full understanding, sampajanya, full clear comprehension of what we're experiencing in the present moment. And once we establish mindfulness, then we fully understand, fully comprehend how we are in the present moment, how our body is, how our mind is, and the truth of each moment. And to continue doing that. <coughs> why do we practice, some people might ask, why do we practice all night long on a day like this? Where we're practicing continuity of awareness in all postures, 
standing, sitting, walking, lying down at all times because the mind is not so used to practicing mindfulness our habit is to go to the five hindrances to fall asleep not to think a lot with anxiety worry distraction seeking distraction in our senses sight, sounds, taste, smell, touch or doubting doubting about why am I practicing what's the point of it and these are the five hindrances that the mind tends to fall into over and over again through our day, through our life so we're learning to practice continuity of mindfulness over and over again re-establishing mindfulness using our faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha the faith in the method of practice the way of practice to bring up the energy to keep doing it especially if you're going to practice for a whole evening whole evening, a whole night you need to keep re-establishing your faith and bringing up patient effort over and over again to put up with your own restless mind or sleepiness or pain in the legs and so on many many different experiences we have as we practice mindfulness but making all of them part of the practice by becoming mindful of the present moment so in terms of his teaching the Buddha separated out the areas that we develop mindfulness we have body feelings mind itself and then what we call Dhamma in the sense of objects of mind the processes of a human mind both the way unwholesome mental states arise and pass away and how wholesome mental states arise pass away four areas of mindfulness that we're developing but the Buddha if we're following his example he began with the body using the breath which is part of the body learning to pay attention to the breath to calm the mind and bring up this sense of mindfulness energy brightness of mind and most importantly equanimity upeka so as we establish mindfulness the result is the mind becomes centered and balanced and calm because it's equanimous to what it's experiencing whether we're having a pleasant experience or unpleasant the mind is peaceful or not as you establish mindfulness it's equanimity that comes to the forefront of your mind of your experience this sense of calm knowing things as they are without judging without grasping at without wanting or rejecting our experience just knowing it as it is with a mind of equanimity so that we can contemplate this may be the one defining quality of a Buddha especially on the night of his enlightenment there were already teachers that had taught him and others how to meditate to develop jhana to develop very serene peaceful states of mind but nobody had taught anyone in the world how to contemplate to uproot 
greed, anger and delusion from the heart. And this is a special function of a Buddha. Develops the wisdom, the insight to really penetrate the true nature of phenomena, meaning physical phenomena, mental phenomena, body and mind, as they manifest in this world. To really understand them as they are by contemplating, developing true vision, clarity of the way things are. So when we practice four foundations of mindfulness, directing the mind to the body, so it might be the breath, the physical aspects of this body, the parts of this body, the four elements, earth, air, fire and water. How do we contemplate? The Buddha encourages us to contemplate, to see the three universal characteristics of existence in this body. This body is impermanent, changing, subject to change. It's aging, it's experiencing different natural processes. If you want to say it in a sort of more modern idiom, you just say the body does its own thing without anyone having to say or control it or command it. It just carries on doing its own thing but to observe that with mindfulness. To have enough clarity to see, oh, the body is just a body that acts according to nature, goes its own way, whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, the body gets older every day. It's changing, it's degenerating, it gets sick, gets hungry, feels hot, feels cold. But it does all that by itself, without anyone having to instruct it or make it do that. So the body is impermanent, changing. It's unsatisfactory because it won't last forever. If you had bought it, you'd want your money back. And it's not self. You can't control it or make it yours, even though we with delusion we identify with our own body as me, mine, myself, my body. It's not actually that. The body is made up of the four elements and they go according to their own nature. Eventually this body must die. We separate from everyone we love and like in this world through death. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can take the best food, the best medical care we can, but we can't stop the inevitability of old age, sickness and death taking over this body. So this is what we're practicing mindfulness of, directed to the body to see it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, without owner. This is what frees the mind from greed, anger and delusion arising based on our attachment to the body. If we can see the body is just body, see the body as it is, see other people's bodies as it is, as they are, our body as it is, this brings us clarity, freedom from delusion, freedom from suffering. A mind that fully understands the body as impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, is going to be liberated 
That's what the Buddha experienced through his practice of anapanasati and then contemplating. He also directed his attention to the Vaitana, seeing how Vaitana is also impermanent, suffering, not self, even pleasant feelings. Vaitana means feeling, physical feeling, mental feeling. Even pleasant feelings are impermanent, suffering, not self, in the sense they don't last. They're, we can't make them last, we can't sustain pleasant pleasure, pleasant feeling. It goes according to causes and conditions. Again, feeling does its own thing, whether we like it or not. So observing that with mindfulness as we practice, say on an occasion like this, direct the mind to be mindful of feeling. Pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. Even if it's more unpleasant than pleasant, if you have some pain in your leg or you walk outside, it's very cold. Try to be mindful of that. Equanimous, calm, just notice our feeling is like this, pleasant, unpleasant. Rather than letting it affect your mind and lead to all kinds of reactions of desiring, wanting, attaching, liking, disliking, based on your feelings. And this is what mindfulness and the practice of Mindfulness allows us to allows us to see feeling as it is, not to grasp at it as self, but to see feeling as feeling. Mind as mind. Mind can be caught up with greed, anger, delusion and confusion, or it can be free from greed, free from anger, free from confusion. The mind can be conditioned by the different experiences it has. Again, to establish mindfulness of your mind, to notice sometimes it is free from all forms of suffering. It's peaceful, it feels very normal, peaceful, maybe even has some refined joy and happiness arising from the practice. Other times, when the conditions are right, we fall into greed, selfishness, anger, different kinds of confusion and suffering, jealousy, worry and so on. But keep establishing mindfulness and know that. Know each experience as it is. Know the mind as a mind, whether it's defiled or not. And then the objects of mind, the different mental states we're experiencing. The more we practice mindfulness, come to understand how kilesa, greed, anger, delusion, how it arises. What do we have to do to become greedy, become angry? Meaning, what does our mind do? Where do we put it? What do we pay attention to? What do we think about that makes us greedy, angry, or confused and deluded? What do we have to do to free it from that? In the processes that affect this mind. This practice that we do, developing uh, morality and virtue, sila, developing mindfulness, developing wisdom and understanding is freeing the mind. So understand how to do that, how to bring up mindfulness, how to bring up wisdom, how to bring up kindness and compassion. 
become mindful of how it affects the mind. When the mind has a thought of kindness, what does it feel like? What's the effect on the mind? What's the difference between a mind of compassion or kindness and a mind of anger? What's the difference between a mind of greed and a mind of non-greed? When there's no greed in the mind, there's contentment. There's a sense of peace, not wanting anything else, not desiring anything else, not seeking anything else. When the mind is greedy, it's looking for something, it's focusing on something, wanting something. Learn the difference between the two. Learn how greed arises, how it passes away. How does anger arise? How does it pass away? How does delusion arise? How does it pass away? The Buddha said if you practice mindfulness in this way, within seven days you maintain and sustain your mindfulness, you'll be enlightened. Seven days. If not seven days, then seven months. If not seven months, seven years. If not seven years, seven lifetimes. The Buddha in his vast, limitless knowledge had that understanding. Human beings can train and they can realize the end of suffering very quickly if they really put their hearts into developing mindfulness and insight in this way. But in practical terms, as we practice, perhaps we don't need to dwell too much on time. Our modern society, we're so obsessed with time. Some people come to the monastery and say, I've got to get enlightened this year or that's it, I'm off. <laughs> Just setting themselves up for suffering. Whether you're going to attain results quickly or slowly, it doesn't matter. Don't think of the time. Think about the practice, bringing up mindfulness, putting attention on the present moment. That's where we have to work and practice. That's where we overcome the obstacles of the practice. If we just focus on time and results, when am I going to become enlightened? When will my life get better? When, I, when will I get through all this suffering? we're actually creating more obstacles for ourselves by thinking like that. Thinking about getting things, wanting things, attainments, wanting happiness, wanting success, that actually creates suffering for the mind, puts a burden on it, creates the causes for future disappointment when we don't get what we want as quickly as we want or in the way we want. So try to catch that habit be like the Buddha, we accept that we still have practice to do, but we look more to the present moment, what's arising in our heart, in our experience right now, rather than always looking to the future, when will I get this, get my experience, get my good meditation, get enlightened. The Buddha sometimes talked about Nibbana or enlightenment more as like going back to what exists already rather than getting or creating something new or finding something new. It's actually clearing the path, clearing all the obstacles away so that we can actually get back to the mind that is pure, undefiled, peaceful. 
as a very good way of looking at the practice sometimes rather than trying to get something it's actually just clearing away obstacles along the path just like when we on a working bee you clear the paths in the forest you pick up pieces of wood or rocks or bushes that have got in the way you clear them out of the way so the path is clear you're not necessarily getting anything or going anywhere it's just clearing away the obstacles that arise before you one by one and then eventually you reach enlightenment so as we practice tonight you know, don't think too much about time you know, how long to go how many hours when is dawn when is the chanting the way the mind will think think more about what is arising right now in my mind is it wholesome, skillful, good? Is it unwholesome, unskillful? Establish mindfulness in that way and contemplate. Let go. Give it up. Whatever's bothering the mind, just give it up right there and then. If dukkha is arising, dukkha means stress, suffering, then know it as dukkha. This is dukkha rather than reacting to it. Oh, I can't stand this dukkha anymore. Getting caught up into the reactions and the moods. Try to just recognize dukkha for what it is. Suffering is like this. It feels like this when we have some pain or discomfort. Bodily discomfort, mental discomfort. It's just like this. Establish mindfulness in this way rather than always judging and creating stuff. So this is how we might practice tonight, meditating together out of gratitude to the Buddha and recollecting the Buddha, how he practiced his life, his enlightenment and then seeing we can also follow and become enlightened in the same way if we're willing to follow along the same path. So for the first part of this evening program we'll f I'll finish the talk there and we'll just finish off with the circumambulation. Uh, we have some electronic candles and flowers and incense for everybody. We'll give out to you all and just chant, recite a little verse together and then go outside can keep your shoes on because it's very cold and we'll walk around the hall three times remembering Buddha Dhamma Sangha meditating mindfully as we walk and then come back in here one more time to end the session for now so uh, Jeffrey do we have some flowers to give out <laughs> <laughs>